0: Well hey, good morning everybody. Good Good to see all of you guys. Uh, This is your first time here at Hill City. My name is John Wagler. Uh, I'm part of this team here and uh, just grateful uh, you are here. Can we uh, give it up for these guys who just let us in singing this one? Yeah. You know, uh, they are talented, of course, but you know, what's really cool is um, their hearts to want to create space for people to actually really sing and to really worship God, and it's not just about a show. Um, You have some of the most humble people up here uh, really just using their talents and their gifts to honor God, and so um, it comes out when they do it. So I just love it so much. And um, and so we're in this series uh, called Devoted, and um, in this series, we're in week uh, number three. Uh, Here's what this series is not. Um, This series is not like five steps to being more devoted. Okay? Um, that's not it. We'll, we'll talk about some practical things and we'll get there around a, a lot of elements, but um, really I want to layer in some deep elements because uh, we know when we're devoted to something, right? Like I know I'm devoted to my marriage with Lacey, um, not because I said something on my wedding day. It's because for 21 years we try to grow every year in our relationship, right? And so we we try to like we're devoted to it. We are devoted to one another. So so even just when we went when we walked down the aisle, right, and I saw her come down and everything. It's like beautiful moment, everything. You go through all your vows and and those are beautiful, beautiful moments of who you will be in, in a marriage of years to come. But guess what? It doesn't mean you're devoted. It's like, no, that comes out in your actions. So you can actually say, uh, yeah, 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 I, I love this Jesus, or I believe in Jesus, right? But it doesn't mean you're devoted. You have to see it in your actions, and we have to see it over time to actually see whether or not that's legitimately true. And so what we want to do over this series is we're just trying to layer in some deep foundational building blocks to what this means to be devoted to Jesus. And so if you're new to this whole church thing, And you're coming in with zero biblical knowledge and you're just trying to like figure things out. Um, This is actually a really great series to be here. Uh, Yes, we're diving into some deeper things. However, um, I want you to see what it should be like. I want you to see and feel like what, what it should be like to, to follow Jesus and what a grouping of believers should look like and talk like and act like and everything uh, together. And so that's what it's been about. You know, when the early church movement started, um, all of the believers on the front end uh, were, were Jewish, um, in, like right in the beginning. Um, they, were, they were all Jewish. And so um, here's the thing about why we so often, and we'll do it again today and and, and if you guys have been around for a long time, you, you know that I do this a lot. But the reason why we tie so much of what Jesus did and what he taught and everything back to the Old Testament and back to things that were said and, and some of the language that's used is because it's part of the story of the Jewish people. It's part of the story of God's, God's people. And uh, if you're missing out on some of those things, and it's okay if we didn't learn them on the front end, but when you miss out on them, you miss the depth of what our whole faith is about. So even when we start talking about the gospel, and it's like, man, if when we're talking about the gospel and we don't have something tied in to the story of Israel, we're missing out on something significant with the story of the gospel. And so we look at this, and we're going to tie it back in today, but there was this big story happening a lot of times we think, well, yes, I just came to faith in Jesus in 2022. And so it's like, it's like right now. and It's like, no, 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 no. It is thousands and thousands of years old. And that's what you're being engrafted into is this huge story about why you were created, this huge story about who God is, his, his purpose for our lives. And so um, when the early Christians, the first Jewish and then Gentiles, non-Jews started coming along, right, they were engrafted into this story and they had to learn about the depth of this story and the building blocks that were there. And so that's what we're doing uh, throughout this um, series. And so we've started the first two weeks. The first week was about the fear of the Lord. And that this fear of the Lord, um, this awe, this honor, this respect, this reverence, um, brings up this godly wisdom. And that we, we have to have godly wisdom to be able to navigate the world uh, around us. And then last week, we looked at what does it mean to not take the Lord's name and make it common, right? We said um, in scripture, what ends up happening is, is there's things that are set apart as holy and you keep them pure. But when you make his name common, you make it impure, and so we don't want our faith to be uh, impure, impure. And we looked at Matthew chapter five, verse eight, which says, "The blessed are the pure in heart." For those of you that were here, see if you remember. For they will what see God. And so, if you want to see God more in your relationships, to see God more in your life, then you have to have what a purity of heart of who you are. And I'm not talking about just in actions. I'm talking about, man, God is holy, so I keep Him holy. The name of Jesus is holy, so I keep that name holy. My life is set apart as sacred and holy, so I keep that holy. If I make it common, it becomes impure. And so uh, today I want to move a little bit further on, uh, with that whole common idea and like add another layer in for us. And so um, I want you to, to kind of um, be a part of the illustration here, okay? And so here's what I want you guys to do. I want you to take out your phones. Um, And you're going to, so if this fails, this is on you, not me. Um, (laughs) But I want you to take out your phones and then I want you to go here um, to menti.com and there's the code to to type in, okay? Um, To menti.com and there's the code to type in. So the code is 44859710, menti.com, 44859710. Got it? All right, menti.com, 44859710. We'll leave it up there there for a second. And when you go there, you're going to see a question that's there. And I just want you to answer it. Um, You can use like a couple of words. Don't put in a sentence. Um, Just like either one word or a couple of words. Um, And the question is going to be like, what do people look for in a church? And so... um, I just want to, like, when you were looking for a church, what were you looking for when people you know, like, when they're looking at a church, like, man, what are they actually like looking for? It's like, what, what, what's their checklist of things that have to be there um, to, to be able to see what a church is actually about? So go ahead and type that stuff in, and then what's going to start to happen, and we can bring it up, Brian, if we've got um, is this little word cloud, right? Because I want you to see... What people are, are, are typing in and some of this stuff is going to be so good and it's so, um, it's spot on. So we'll see things like, you want to feel like you you're belong, you want community, you want to see something more like love, you got peace and acceptance, you got worship up there, uh, non-judgmental, there's a friendliness, you know, kids ministry, I know it's spinning fast, um, the ability to learn, uh, good sermons. Hospitality, short music intervals. (laughs) It's good. This is good, you guys. I love like that. It's not a ritual. It's not a ritual. It's not politically based. Similar age groups. Got good childcare. Not boring. (laughs) Bagels are up there. I'm shocked I don't see coffee up there, unless I just don't see it yet. Again, more kids stuff. Then you see stuff like salvation, fullness of life, biblically focused, comfortable, equality, right? So anyway, so all this stuff, and you see this. And it's interesting, okay, And, and, and a lot of this stuff is really good. So I'm not trying to like, you know, make fun of anything that's up there. A lot of stuff is really good. But people have these expectations of what they want in a church and when they're choosing a church. And some of those things are actually really good. But I think what starts to happen is um, our expectations can actually get a little off. I I saw this quote um, earlier this week, and it said this In the beginning, the church was a fellowship of men and women centered on the living Christ. Then the church moved to Greece, where it became a philosophy. Then it moved to Rome, where it became an institution. Next, it moved to Europe, where it became culture, and finally moved to America, where it became an enterprise. And I saw this quote. And is this oversimplified? Yes. Okay. Yes. And are there like you know scenarios that you can kind of pull out? Well, it wasn't always that, and I get the argument some of it. But in general, this is pretty true. And so when it gets to the America piece and it says that it became an enterprise, it's interesting when you, when you start seeing historically this, the story that you're a part of. And this is why I wanted this at a deeper level of our faith because I want us to see the biggest story that we're a part of and, and why it's so pivotal. It's like, man, what we see in church today and what we see in Christianity today as a whole, not individually and not in certain terms, as a whole is not what was represented early on. It's not actually what we see in the Bible. There, there, there are things, um, there are there are some good things? Of course, of course. But what we started to see is that this big shift started to happen within the church world. And when it became an enterprise, the focus started becoming more on leadership um, when it came to like um, pastors and staff. And so there's a huge focus on, Jim Collins has this teaching. He's a wonderful leadership uh, uh, author. He has this teaching, he talks about well, you gotta have the right people on the bus. Right, and then he says, and if they're not in the right seats, you put them in the right seats, or you get them off the bus. Right? That's um, wonderful for leadership, but it really is. It's great for staffs and everything. Um, it's not great for a church. It's good now, you know, for our staff. We talk about having the right people on the bus. Of course, we want that. But like for our church, you don't. It's like ah, you don't. You're not in the right seat, so you need to go to another church. You're not on the right bus. Like that's like that's the wrong way to start thinking about. Church and the church started thinking, um, you know, you had more entrepreneurs and leaders than you had shepherds when it came to pastors, and so that's when we started seeing more people getting hurt and more people getting abused and in unhealthy nature and toxic nature in the churches um, themselves. And then we start seeing like then churches start moving, like, how do we make it more comfortable? That word was up there on the screen. How do you make it comfortable for people? What do we need to do? And so you start doing all these different things, right? Like we need coffee and we need a slide in the kids area. We need like, listen, if there's a slide in the kids area, I'm in. Like it's so cool. Like we went to church, it was like super cool. But you start doing all these things. And like at one point, in particular in the 80s, it started happening. We need lights and we need haze and we need all this other stuff because you need to feel like this is what they're getting outside in the world. And it's like you started going down this road and where does it ever stop? See, once you start becoming about entertainment, guess what? You only can entertain. And so then that sets up this interesting dynamic. Then people start consuming church. And so we start seeing you come in. It's like, "Mm, I don't like that worship. Let's go to the next one. I didn't like that song they sang. Let's go to the next one. And then it becomes really easy to then pick and choose what you want to do. And so it starts becoming really tribal, right? And so that's what we started seeing. It really started in particular late 70s, early 80s, where this really started happening, like aggressively so. Now it happened a little bit before that, but like aggressively so, it started happening there. To where we get today, and there's a lot of dismantling of the church. Now, I want you to help me with the second part of this illustration. Underneath your seat is a card, okay? And so you're going to go to that same site that you were on, but I want you to read A verse, I know it's very difficult to get the card underneath your seat, I know. There's a verse in your seat that you're going to read in each section. All right, so you guys have the same verse, you guys have the same verse, you guys have the same verse, you guys have the same verse. And I want you to read your verse that you have. And now I want you to type in a word that describes, maybe one or two words, that describes what God expects from the church. I want you to type it in. So when you go back to the menti.com site and you look at there's going to be a second question there. Okay? There'll be a second question. And I want you to describe what does God expect from the church compared to what we expect or what we look for in a church. So go ahead and start typing in. So here's some of the things we start seeing. And some of them will overlap. Be strong, encouraging, accountability, love, forgiveness, compassionate, gratefulness, building one another up, selflessness, unity, to walk in love, to be devoted, to be like Christ, a fragrant offering, discipleship, considerate worship, peace of Christ a humility, a purity. We have all these things that start happening and it's like, you know what we don't see? We don't see kids ministry up there. We don't see a really great worship team. We don't see, you know, man our youth group has to be the best in Richmond. We don't see, I hope they have great coffee. I do want our slide though still. But we don't see some of these things that people look for on the front end. And so I wonder, I wonder if maybe our expectations have gotten a little off. And listen, if you're looking for a good kids ministry, we have one. We have a great youth ministry too. And we care about those because we care about our kids and our students. But man, sometimes people be like, well, this one's better over here. And it's like, well, yeah, but what are you teaching your kids bouncing around so much? What, do you, what about being committed and devoted to a community? Well, like, what are you really looking for in a church and, and what do they do? Which one has the James verse? One of you guys have the James verse? I don't know which one. You guys, have the James verse, right? It's like talking about like helping widows and orphans. Like, do we, pro, do we approach a church and be like, hey, can we talk about how you guys help widows and orphans? And so our expectations can get a little off. And, and I wrote this down this week. I said, if we don't understand expectations, our relationships will be defined by immaturity and conflict. This goes for your, your just human relationships, but this also goes for your relationship with Jesus. If you don't understand the expectations of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and what his church is supposed to be, at best, at best, you'll have an immature relationship. At best. At worst, you're going to be in constant conflict. And so I think it's really important then for us to take a step back and start understanding um, what some of these expectations really are. And so um, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 3. And um, I love this passage so much for multiple reasons. But I want you to see as Paul, this guy Paul, he's writing this letter to the church at Corinth. And they're, uh, they're pretty new in the, in, in the following Jesus scene. Um, They've been around for a little bit, but Paul has been a part of their community, and he's trying to write this letter to them to to help them grow in their faith and help them be truly devoted to to following Jesus. And so he starts in 1 Corinthians 3, and he says this. He says, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still what? Worldly. He's like, and and I want you to remember, he's like, I can't address you as people who live by the spirit yet because you're still pretty worldly. He goes, you're mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. He says, you are still worldly. Meaning, you're saying you're doing this Jesus thing, but you're just sipping on milk. You got a little sippy cup, right? And it's like do you want some chicken? And it's like, no, I gotta, you can only drink milk, okay? And, and he's like, I can't give you that stuff yet. It's like, you're, you're still in your sippy cup. He says, for since, look at this, there's jealousy and quarreling among you. Are you not worldly? He says, are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, then another one says, I follow Apollos. Are you not mere human beings? And he's like, look at how you're acting. Look at how you're talking. You're saying you're a Christian, but hold on a second. There's jealousy and there's fighting and there's division and there's conflict and you have all this pride and say, look at me, this is who we follow. I'm putting it in this, ca- I'm in the Paul camp. I'm in the Apollo's camp. And Paul's like, nuh-uh. that's what humans do. Humans get tribal. Humans try to put themselves in a camp. That's not what we do. Whose crew are we a part of? Jesus. And he's like, if you're going to start putting yourself in a category, I'm a progressive Christian. I'm a, I'm a, liber- I'm a liberal Christian. I'm a conservative Christian. I'm gonna do- if you're going to start putting yourself in, the ca- in that category, guess what you are being? Immature and worldly. Acting like a human being. And Paul is like, that's not what happens. That's not what we do. That's not what it means to be mature in Christ. Here are four signs of compromising our faith. Because here's what we start seeing what Paul's addressing. He's like, we're compromising our identity. There are expectations that are set and we start to compromise in those expectations. And so here's what it looks like. There's jealousy. There's jealousy within a grouping of Christians. There's jealousy within the church. There's jealousy between um, one another. Um, You you can see it through comparison. Um, You can see it through competition. You can see it through being like power hungry, right? I want what they have. This can happen with pastors a lot, actually, and church staffs a lot. You could be like, no, well, we're a better church than they are. How how come they're bigger than we are, right? Like stuff like that. But it also can happen within congregations of people. It happens um, through division. And we start seeing like this kind of tribal element and kind of the four main areas that you see of division within the church are political, generational, economic, and racial. Those are the four typical ones, political, economic, generational, and racial. That's what we typically see um, within the church. And and listen, if you see any of those, that is immature at best, worldly, and of Satan at worst. So when a church divides politically, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, that is not Christ-like. It is actually of the devil. When a church divides generationally and they're like, I only want to be with other millennials or other Gen Xers or other boomers or other Gen Zers, right? Can we get our own thing over here? I'm just telling you, it's incredibly immature to act like that. Now, I know people want to meet people their own age. I'm not saying you don't want to do that. I'm just saying within our community, it's like, no, 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 like, that's why we do discipleship in an intergenerational way. Why? Because we want people in their 60s and 70s to be with people in their 20s, and both of you guys going, what? Right? There's a beauty in that, and learning how to grow together in that way. There's a pride developed here where we start seeing that we don't need community, that you can be outside of the church and be fine. Um, I understand if someone gets hurt and abused and like something like incredibly toxic and you're outside of the church for a little while because you're like, I, I'm scared to get back in it. I get that, all right? I'm not referring to those in that category. To people who are like, mm, I don't need church, I'm fine on my own, I can do this whole thing on my own. It's like, oh, you know how the church is and da-da-da, right? They have that kind of language. Um, again, that is incredibly immature. And how to talk about your faith. But what's interesting is the Bible says when you're outside of a community of believers regularly, um, it refers to it as, as being in hell. It talks about being like in Gehenna, like put them out, like put them outside as if it's like this huge punishment is to be outside of a community of believers. And so it's interesting that culturally, I mean, in Christianity, it's like, mm, I don't really need it. It's like, that's actually not what scripture says and how this whole thing was actually lined up to be. And you do what you want. And the last thing is you have a little cultural creep. And listen, we, we can all get it. We can't get any of these four, all right? No one's above any of this stuff. You have a little cultural creep. And here's what I mean. Culture starts defining um, ways that you see life and ways that you see relationships, ways that you see um, scenarios. And so rather than taking your cues first from scripture and like bouncing these ideas off of like a community of believers and talking about them together and wanting to say, "Yeah, but how does this bring us back to scripture? How does this bring us back to the way God wants us to live? How does this bring us back because that is our expectation as believers?" So how does this bring it back? Like what do we do? See so if you have a cultural creep coming in, you'll be like, "You look to the things of well, you know what? Things have changed a little bit." And it's like, yeah, yeah, I get it. Like life changes and things happen and and things change in this world. But guess what? You start with scripture and you start with other believers and you start talking about it together. It's like, what does this look like? What do we see? Like, how do we pray about this together? And you kind of go about like whatever the cultural topic is and you approach it in that way. It is incredibly immature to just be like, "Mm, I don't want to get like, like involved in scripture with this one. Because I feel like it should be this way. And so it's like, no, 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 if we're really devoted to this, if we really understand our expectations, and we're like, all right, how do we really talk about this? Where do we go first? Paul continues on. He says, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, as someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, meaning when you're setting up your life, like what are you building it on? Like really taking a step back and being like, is my life really built on Christ and his teachings? Is my life really built on these things? And to take great care with it. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So don't try and make this whole church thing about anything else the other than Jesus. Don't make it about politics because if you make it about politics and it's no longer about Jesus, you're not being the church. You're being an organization. so he's like, don't make it about these things. It's like, hold on, we make it about Jesus. we let Jesus speak into everything in our lives. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is. Because the day, meaning there will come a time where all of us will stand before God and then be like, all right, let's see what you're about. And the, th- and the way that you lived your life and what you built your life on will be brought to light. And so you can build on this whole Jesus and you can put gold, it can be shiny, it can be like, look at me, look, at, man, look what I've done, look at, like this is like, it looks really good. But Paul says, someday we'll all be held accountant. It will be revealed with fire. The fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives the builder will receive a reward if it is burned up the builder will suffer loss but yet will be saved even though only as one escaping through the flame so here's what he's saying he's not saying that um, you'll be separated from god he's just saying that like you're so immature in your faith like you're just going to kind of scoot in there with like a singed butt <laughs> it's like i just got in right i just that was close y'all that was like really close right And so you have to start thinking like, well, hold on a second. When I look to people for guidance and wisdom and leadership, do I want someone who just barely gets in or someone who's actually devoted to following Jesus? When I'm looking to wisdom around me, am I looking for someone who's got a singed butt or someone who's like fully entrenched in who God is and what God expects? Who am I looking for and who am I in this? What am I building my life on? And then look, and this is the part we're going to concentrate on here for just a minute. It says, don't you know that you yourself are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys, this is like heavy language today. Like truly. I mean, think about it. Paul's like, Paul's not like playing around here. He's like, oh, here's a good little thing, like a little encouraging moment for these guys, right? He's like, hold on a second. Someday you're going to be held accountable for how you live your life and what you build it on. You've got to come to grips with that. And if you're saying you're a follower of Jesus, you can fool people now, but guess what? Someday it's going to be laid out. And so who do you want to be? Like, do you, that's what's expected of us then he says this. He's like, but don't you know that you yourself are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? And look at this. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Think about this. If another Christian is jealous and viciously, viciously attacks another Christian, God's like, uh, I'm going to come with wrath against that other person. This is not like, he's not playing around. He's like, if you're going to try and tear down the church and try and tear down a grouping of Christians, if you're going to tear down like fellow believers with like gossip and slander and anger and division and conflict, then God's going to come against you. That's not light. It's like this is, this is how serious all this stuff is. And so do you wanna like take it that way? And so when we start seeing this, it's like, hold on a second all this temple language and all this spirit language, this is actually um, really critical. And I want to just like give you guys like just a little brief look at this because when, when Paul says that you are God's temple and that the God's spirit dwells in your midst and in you and in me, that's not something to just play around with, okay? So when we see in scripture with the, with the spirit, Genesis 1 and 2, here's what we see we see that the Spirit is part of a new creation. All right? A part of a new creation. Peace. And when I, when I say peace, it's the Spirit of God, um, in Genesis 1 and 2, it, it calms the waters and, it, and, and it brings light into darkness. Okay? So this is what the Spirit of God does. In Genesis chapter 2, it says that Adam's body um, was a body, was a human but was not alive till the Spirit of God breathed life into him. And so it's like, the Spirit of God is something very significant then, it brings uh, new creation, it brings life. And Exodus 31 talks about gifts, that the Spirit of God, that, that each one of us in this room, that we have, we have gifts, and that the Spirit of God will use these gifts, and um, these gifts, things that have, and empower us with our giftings. And in those giftings, uh, we begin to see a greater wisdom. We start seeing God more in our giftings. And so we're all gifted in different ways. And so maybe let's say you're gifted in hospitality. It's like when the spirit of God infuses your hospitality, you don't just welcome people into your home and have like a nice party. Is that God begins to use your hospitality in so many different ways that you begin to see God in people differently. You see God differently in those situations. When someone comes into your home, it's a whole different feel. And I'm like, man, they throw a good party. It's like, no, there's something different about what happens when I'm there. There's something with it. And that there's these giftings that become empowered. In Ezekiel 7, I'm actually just saying a part of this. I talked about uh, bones into armies. It's taken, it's, it's, um, Death to life. All right, so a resurrection element that we begin to see that, man, when the Spirit of God begins to work, that there's this, wants to resurrect what is dead in us. What's dead in us. And then in John 20, Jesus, it's it's the passage where um, Jesus looks at his disciples and says that he breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Here's what that meant. Up until that point, they were operating. They were. But from that point on, the, the Spirit of God began to move inside of them differently. All right? So again, there, there's this element of movement in us. All right? Of movement. So I want you guys to see that there's this through line throughout the whole scripture about the Spirit. So when, so rather than reading the passage like that with Paul being like, ooh, cool, the Spirit of God is in me. I like that. Paul is actually saying something unbelievably deep. Unbelievably deep. He's like, Do you know what you've learned your entire life for generations about how the Spirit of God works? It is in your midst, it is in you. He's like, And listen, collectively, like you guys, you are God's temple. What is that? Why does that matter? So, this is the temple here, all right? This is the Ark of the Covenant that we talked about a couple weeks ago. This is the garden. The temple and the Ark of the Covenant point back to the garden, all right? They always do. And, and even the way that they're structured and made and everything, it points back to the garden in the garden, here's why. Because the garden, again, was heaven on earth and the presence of God. So when Paul says that you guys are the temple, God's temple. He's not just setting us up to be like, you're this cool little structure. He's saying that you guys are God's temple. And here's what this means. You house the presence of God. That you guys, collectively, as believers, are supposed to be heaven on earth and that when people encounter you, they are encountering the presence of God. Hold on. Does this not change our expectations of what this is today? What your disciple groups are, what your community groups are, when your friends are gathering and you're a bunch of believers. It makes it sacred, it makes it holy. I mean, get this you look across this room. Every person in this room that claims to be a follower of Jesus it says that you, you are part of God's temple, that you are the presence of God, and that the Spirit very spirit of God dwells inside of you in this and that collectively that when people are around us guess what they are like oh my gosh that's what heaven's like <laughs> when you come in that's what we talk about coming into church with fear and trembling right because hold on the God of the universe and like we had this intimate connection with the God of the universe and It's like I'm coming to church together with other people it's like hold on a second God might do something and that collectively together, there might be one person. I don't care if it's just one person. One person might be really hurting in this room. It's like collectively together, the presence of God and the Spirit of God dwells in here, man, that one person just might get it. All of a sudden, you look at another person in this room and you're like, you're sacred. Like you're, you're sacred. Your life is sacred. And I can't believe we get to do this together and be devoted to this together and you can see why if that's true that's true this is why you can't just be casual about community and you can't be casual about like growing in your faith you can't be casual about this whole church thing it makes it impossible it makes it impossible if we see it the right way because here's why proximity to the presence of god equals holiness that's what we see in the temple. That's what we see in the Ark of the Covenant. That's what we see in the garden. Proximity to the presence of God equals holiness. I'm not saying you're holy and perfect. No one's that. But what the holiness really means is this right relationship with God and that there's this wholeness that starts to happen and that together in community we start experiencing. So this changes the expectations of who we are. So I want you to see three big expectations of Christians. And then I'm just going to read you um, a couple of quotes to end. Three expectations of Christians. Followers of Jesus live in such a way that they will not be a barrier for others to know the love, grace, and truth of Jesus. You see what we see in the temple the temple model? At the end of the Old Testament, here's what we end up seeing. That the temple didn't work because the temple got corrupted. Do you guys know the, the scene where Jesus cleanses the temple? There's a story about Jesus cleansing the temple. There's a lot to that story. But one of the things that he's doing is is like he's saying like this doesn't work you guys corrupted it and you're corrupting my presence you've become a barrier from people actually getting to know the real me and so the church then is like no no, we we are never a barrier to people coming to know the love grace and truth of jesus (laughs) another one the people who claim jesus as their own bring heaven and earth together did you know that's that's what you're supposed to do in your life you go to work tomorrow, you run a business, you run people, whatever. You go to work tomorrow, guess what you're doing at work tomorrow? Not grumbling and complaining and hating it. You might want a different job, that's cool. But while you have it, guess what you're doing? You're being heaven on earth in your job. Why? Because you're sacred. You have the presence of God inside of you. And that's the point. So even as, if you're a manager of people, let me just speak to you for a second. If people don't experience the presence of God in you and heaven and earth in you as a manager of people, then guess what? You are not being Christ-like and you're incredibly immature in your faith. Because there's no separation in our work versus like our church life. The third thing, the life of the church shows that the way of Jesus simply wins. And what I mean by that, and we'll sing this in a second, that God does not fail. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but the way of the world doesn't work. The progressive way of the world doesn't work. The really conservative way of that doesn't work. It's like, but God's way does. It works, it doesn't fail. In a book I was reading, um, I saw this quote. Uh, it says this The problem we currently face is not primarily political or ideological. The problem is the compromised identity of the church itself and the compromised message of the gospel. This is what started happening. That's why I want to raise our expectations of who we are. Raise our expectations of what you think about your faith. Raise your expectations of your relationships. Raise your expectations of who you are at work. Raise your expectations of what this means gathering in here today. Raise your expectations of why you should be in discipleship. Raise your expectations of why you should care about community. Raise your expectations of of why this should be a familiar thing and a consistent thing in your life. Because this is what God did. and This is how he established it to be. And so i did a lot of reading um as i've said a couple weeks uh, about early church and i just want to read you a few quotes because when i when i read these quotes i'm like oh man like this story is thousands of years old and this is what you're a part of i get it when people in like modern era like come like "Mm, i don't know about the church thing i get it like what you see and everything but this isn't the story of how, how it was. And so I wanna read you um, some actual quotes and actual lines from letters from uh, the first and second century to begin to see like, what it was actually like for the people closest to the early disciples. This is a letter from Diognetus, who's a Roman official um, in the mid-100s. Here he is describing Christians, okay? He says, they live in their own countries, but only as aliens. They have a share in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign land is their fatherland, yet for them, every fatherland is a foreign land. Yet, although they live in Greek and barbarian cities alike, as, as each man's lot has been cast, meaning they were just born there, wasn't their choice, and follow the customs of the country in clothing and food and other matters of daily living. So they didn't have like a separate Christian store Right? They didn't have like a not of this world togas, you know, whatever. Like they didn't have like, like that stuff. He says, in clothing of food and other matters of daily living, he says, at the same time, they give proof of their remarkable and admittedly extraordinary constitution of their own commonwealth. It's like, man, there's a way that everything was set up in Greece, but what they're doing is extraordinary. The constitution of their commonwealth, because they built something within something. It's just so different. You can't like, you can't merge them both. It's like, this is the way it was. We have uh, 247 letters from this guy, Pliny the Younger, who lived from 61 to 117 AD. And he, he, he would talk about, um, I don't have a quote from him, but he would talk about um, repeatedly in his letters of Christians, he would say, he goes, man, he goes, we persecute these guys like crazy, like all the time. We're killing them. We're killing them. And we're just like, all you need to do is just bow, bow to our gods too. You can keep your Jesus, just bow, bow to our gods. He goes, and repeatedly, they refuse and they choose imprisonment and death. That's the mode. Because they were like, man, no, this, we're separate from all this other stuff. Polycarp was um, in 155 AD, he was 86 years old, and um, he proclaimed uh, his life uh, in, uh, to Jesus. And so uh, he knew he was going to die when he did it. And so they, they put him around a fire. I mean, they, they built a fire around him. And um, as they lit the, the fire and lit the wood, they're like, they're going to burn him to death. In um, the letter that is talked about his, his, um, his execution, it, said, it talks about the shield that went around Polycarp and he wouldn't die. Like the fire wouldn't touch him. And everyone's looking. It's like, what is going on? He is supposed to be in fire. And it's like there's this shield around him and he wouldn't die. And so Polycarp says this while in fire. I bless thee because thou hast deemed me worthy of this day and hour, to take my part in the number of martyrs and the cup of Christ for resurrection to eternal life of soul and body. Soon after he says this, they stab him to death and execute him. Another guy, Tertullian, who was um, late 100s, uh, right around 200, um, he was a Christian and he wrote a lot about like uh, Christianity's impact and, and what it was happening um, in them. And, he, and listen to what he says. The band, you guys can come back up. He says, we acknowledge only one universal commonwealth, the whole world. So we will not, this is not about where we are right now. Like he would come to us and be like, no, no, you can, you can want America to like be healthy and blessed and like you can want America to be like you know, fruitful and like God-honoring. You can want all those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes, but no, no, no. The whole world, the whole world for God. That is our commonwealth. He also said this, and I love this. He says, the church is united by common religious profession, by a godly discipline, by a bond of hope. We meet together as an assembly and congregation that as an organized force, we may assail God with our prayers. We prayed this morning. Do we be like, dear God, I just thank you for the sun. I thank you that I'm healthy today and just pray for a good day. Amen. Or do we pray with like as an organized force we can pray together to assail God? So I just want us to raise our expectations. What do we do from here? Come back next week and find out more. But My main goal today was, I was just like, I just want, I want us to have higher expectations of what this is, who you are in Christ, when you see other people. Like, I want us to, like, walk through here and, like, smile and everything and, like, think to ourselves, well, it's crazy, like, they're sacred. It's crazy. The presence of God, can you imagine if, like, you looked at other people, do you you understand the presence of God is in you? Can you imagine if that was our heart towards one another? You bow your heads. So God, this morning, um, we're going to sing about your firm foundation and what we build our life on. But God, our hearts need to be in the right spot. And as we're just sitting here I pray, God, that we will um, be convicted of any area where we may not have the right expectations, where we've bought into jealousy, where we've bought into division or conflict or pride, where we've allowed culture to have like a little too much impact and influence in our lives. I pray that we would not want to be immature Christians, but that we would build our life on something that is true something that is solid, something that is firm, something that will never fail. God, I pray that we will raise our expectations and have the right expectations of what this whole Christianity thing is supposed to be. And that a couple thousand years from now, when they write letters about the church, that someone will get up and read about what was going on in Richmond, Virginia at some people at Hill City Church because, man, they just committed to it. It was a different constitution, a different commonwealth. <laughs> their, lat, their lot was cast to be born in America, but man, they lived in a different way. So may our hope and our foundation be found in you. You stand and sing.